Um, good evening, uh, children. Um, yesterday we, um, you know, were at uh, chapter three, and now we're going to take up um, the next chapter. In fact, the next couple of chapters, that's four and five. And uh, you know, before I go on, I just want to tell you that I'm, uh, you know, sitting and recording the podcast in my uh, garden, come uh, balcony, so you'd hear probably, you know sounds of birds chirping, some traffic around and you know I think you would have just heard the moving of a cow as well. So don't uh, distract yourself and just concentrate on uh, the lecture. Um, uh, chapter 4 I'll just uh, begin by reading um, you know from uh, the, the opening lines so that you get an understanding of uh, you know how the mood has been set. Uh, you know, for um, the thoughts and uh, the actions that Mary thought is going to take. I worked hard all week, and Raymond came and told me that he'd sent the letter. I went to the cinema a couple of times with Emmanuel, who doesn't always understand what's going on. So you have to explain things to him. Yesterday was Saturday, and Marie came over as we'd arranged. I really fancied her because she was wearing a pretty red and white striped dress and leather sandals. You could see the shape of her firm breasts and her suntan face was like a flower. Uh, so look at the description uh, that he gives of uh, Emmanuel and Marie. Uh, you know there, there is humor in the book but it's very subtle and he says you know that you have to take uh, Emmanuel to, uh, uh, to a cinema but you end up just explaining everything to him because he doesn't understand. And yet he has a very um, sort of an endearing relationship with uh, Emmanuel, his friend. Um, you know, Marie has come over as uh, he'd arranged and he, you know, finds her looking very uh, beautiful in that dress and her leather sandals. And, um, you know, they go for a swim uh, to the beach and uh, it's a very playful kind of an engagement that they have, uh, uh, you know, and um, it's like a, a fun Saturday. Um, and of course, after going to the beach, they come back home and Marie agrees to have lunch with him. He goes uh, down to buy uh, some meat and, uh, you know, when he uh, is coming back to his room, he hears the voice of a woman in Raymond's room. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember that, uh, you know, the letter uh, which he had written on behalf of Raymond had already been sent. He also meets uh, Salamano and um, you know he uh, hears him calling his dog filthy lousy animal as we talked about it yesterday. He also saw um, you know Marie uh, she was wearing uh, a pair of his pajamas with the sleeves rolled up and when she laughed you know he sort of fancied her again. Um, you know a minute later Marie asks him if uh, he loved her and I told her that it didn't mean anything but that I didn't think so and she looked sad. So remember the character of Mirsoth is um, you know not just uh, concretizing the philosophy of the absurd but there is also a great amount of detachment in him. He's detached from people and the environment etc. Although uh, you know he cannot be considered to be absolutely cold or unemotional but remember what Camus said about Mirsoth that he refuses to lie. And so he says, no, it's not uh, that I want to make the wrong noises and say that I love you. It's more that I fancy you. I uh, sort of uh, enjoy your company and I enjoy 
the fact that you know we can be sensual together okay so um after a while they hear you know a woman's shrill voice and then they hear raymond saying you cheated on me you cheated on me i'll teach you to cheat me okay so there is some beating going on remember in uh, yesterday's lecture we talked about how uh, raymond uh, said that he's going to look out for revenge against this woman so there are thuds that are heard there is a terrifying scream and you know the landing of the stairs is filled with people and marie and uh, you know raymond also uh, marie and mersol so we also go out to see and the woman was yelling and raymond was hitting her and marie said that it was terrible and she asked him to go and get the policeman and uh, you know it's very strange um, you know what he says um he says i told her that i don't like policemen um so you know that was a very strange kind of a thing or a strange kind of an answer that she uh, gets from um, raymond and she is quite terrified at the the kind of a you know answer that he gives so um the of course the door is um, opened uh, by uh, you know a plumber who lives um, on the second floor and they see that uh, there's a woman who's crying and he has a cigarette in his mouth and he's got a sugary smile on his face and uh, you know the girl rushed and said uh, the police also comes in the meantime and she said that you know this man hit me and uh, the policeman you know was very angry at the manner in which uh, um, you know raymond behaves in a very uh, saucy way and the policeman gives him a slap and the cigarette falls from his uh, you know mouth and uh, she keeps saying you know he hit me he's a pimp you know and uh, raymond said excuse me officer uh, i mean isn't that against the law if you call me a pimp and we understand that uh, you know whatever he has done in hitting his his mistress is absolutely against the law and uh, you know amidst all this uh, uh, you know violence and amidst all this kind of uh, confusion uh, there is also a lot of humor because of the manner in which raymond reacts you know to the police and uh, he uh, you know looks um, the officer accuses him of being drunk because of the manner in which he was you know almost uh, uh, you know moving from one direction to another and the policeman is very annoyed with him and uh, you know uh, this whole scene is um, you know like um, uh, there's a lot of pandemonium there's a lot of confusion okay so uh, it seems to be uh, you know just uh, sort of um, sorted out in that way and you know the police uh, warns him not to do anything and the whole thing seems to be eventually over although we do understand that you know if mayor salt uh, heard raymond say that he wanted revenge this moorish woman is also going to have a revenge and how is she going to have a revenge through uh her brother and this gang of men who are you know going to meet uh, uh you know mayor salt um and raymond subsequently so um you know raymond comes um, to um, meet a uh, mayor salt after a while and he seems mighty pleased you know uh he he seems very very uh, you know happy that he's hit the woman and uh, you know uh, no action seemed to have been taken against him either and uh, he asks uh, you know mersault if he wants to uh, you know walk with him and he also tells him that he'd have to act as his witness um mersault agrees he says okay if uh, i mean i don't mind 
uh, he says i don't know what i'm supposed to say so he says no what you have to say is that uh, you know the girl cheated on me and mirsalt agrees to act as a witness for him you see mirsalt is a man who i mean you know of course besides being emotionally detached he is a person as i said he's not judgmental and he takes everybody at face value he says uh, you know raymond has told him that this woman is cheating on him he says okay if raymond has said that then i'm sure she's cheating you know he doesn't uh, take so much care to be able to you know go and uh, find out etc he is emotionally detached and yet he also is a person who um, you know sort of uh, sort of believes everything okay so they went out and uh, raven brought him a brandy then they uh, wanted you know he wanted to play a game of billiards and of course um, you know mirsault loses and after that a very significant thing is that he said he wanted to go to a brothel so raymond uh, you know suggested that she should go and visit a prostitute but mirsault said no because i quote i don't like that sort of thing unquote okay so um uh, this uh, you know one aspect of his character in which he refuses to go to visit a prostitute um he'd probably uh, you know uh, you know like to spend his time with marie and uh, be sensual with her rather than uh, being sensual with uh, somebody who probably he doesn't know or maybe at that point of time he wasn't in the frame of mind for that okay um after some time he noticed uh, old salamano was standing on the doorstep looking flustered flustered is you know he looks confused and he looks worried so when they both got nearer that's Raymond and the mayor sold they saw that the dog wasn't with him now this is very unusual remember they've been together for 8 years and that routine of the walk has never ever changed okay so uh, he looks very um you know distraught he looks very distracted and he mumbles a string of unconnected words and when raymond asked him what was wrong he didn't say anything but he just said you know filthy lousy animal filthy lousy animal and then uh, you know suddenly uh, he says you know that my dog has actually disappeared uh, and he says i really don't know how the dog could have uh, could be lost right so you know raymond tries to explain to him that there are cases you know when dogs get lost and you know they uh, sort of run away you know dozens of miles and come back to their masters and we do understand uh, you know this kind of loyalty the dogs have towards their masters and how can we forget the story of hachiku and how he waits for his masters and dies um, you know on the tracks the, of the train by which uh, his master used to come back every day so um you know raymond tries to explain loyalty of a dog and you know and look at who is explaining this fact it's raymond you know who can hardly uh, probably you know give um, you know moral lessons uh, about anything at all um then you know the old man was very confused and he says i think they'll take my dog away uh and then he says i think uh, the police will take him away and then he says no i think my dog is so disgusting nobody will want to uh take that uh, animal and then the you know meantime again he gets very angry and uh, he keeps saying you know again that animal is is a lousy animal and then um you know he finds um, you know mirsol finds that uh, salamano is very very upset about uh, the loss of his dog and uh, you know from here we can judge uh, or we can understand that you know was it that salamano loved his dog so much or was it that he just got used to his dog or was it that you know when his wife um died he put 
uh, you know, uh, that dog in his wife's place, and she sort of, he, uh, you know, filled the kind of vacuum she sort of had left, okay. So, um, then Salamano, you know, tries to ask him things about, uh, you know, where his dog could be, and and he says, you know, they won't take him away from me, will they, Mr. Mesot? They will give him back to me, otherwise what will I do, you know? And there is this kind of uh, extreme dependence that he has upon his dog, and even that is the part of uh, this whole uh, universe that he inhabits, okay? And, uh, you know, he is very attached to the dog, and yet there is a certain amount of detachment, the, the loss of the dog makes him feel absolutely lonely. So he looked at me in silence, I'm ending uh, this chapter with um, a quote um, which, with which the chapter ends. Uh, he looked at me in silence, then he said good night, he closed his door and I heard him pacing up and down. Then his bed creaked and from the peculiar little noise coming through the partition wall, I realized that he was crying. So you see, um, he's crying at the loss of his dog and um, sort of as a reader we, you know, tend to juxtapose or to see how Mersol did not cry at his mother's funeral. But look at the next lines that come. For some reason I thought of mother. You know, that's why I said yesterday there is there's a contrast between Salamano and Mersold, and yet there are certain similarities as well. So he says, I thought of mother, uh, but I had to get up early in the morning. I wasn't hungry and I went to bed without any dinner. So, you know, he begins to sort of get emotional when he thinks about his mother and then he becomes, you know, very mundane, very everyday, very, um, you know, routine and he says, I had to get up early in the morning, I wasn't hungry and I went to bed without dinner. So, uh, we see a significant thing that happened in this chapter, uh, the beating of the woman by Raymond Sitis, Mary Salt's agreeing to become witness uh, for his mate and of course the loss of um, Salamano's um, uh, dog and of course the meeting between Marie and Mersault, right? Now we move uh, to chapter 5. Um, I'm just reading from uh, the opening lines of the chapter. Raymond phoned me at the office. He told me that a friend of his, he'd spoken to him about me, had invited me to spend the day next Sunday at his chalet just outside Algiers. So a uh, chalet is otherwise you know, a kind of a wooden house where you have uh, you know uh, on the beaches or you know for holiday makers and otherwise you have chalets in the Swiss uh, you know Swiss Alps as well they're wooden houses so it is a way to spend Sunday and remember Mersault always looks for something to do on Sunday because uh, if he doesn't have to go to office he finds it utterly boring you know to be alone um, now he also uh, Raymond tells uh, Mersault a very important uh, thing that's happening with him. He said that, you know, he'd been followed all day by a group of Arabs and one of them, significantly, was the brother of his former mistress. So he says, if you see him near the house this evening when you come home, warn me. I told him I would. Okay. So um, Raymond believes everything about Raymond Sinti's very, almost in a uh, you know, in, in a manner that's just unquestionable, you know, and that's part of his, uh, you know, his own nature, a part of being detached, a part of also being non-judgmental, so he, uh, uh, you know, uh, believes him and he says, yes, in case I see the Arabs, I'm definitely going to warn them, right? 
so now uh, you know here in the meantime uh, you also uh, there's a proposal that uh, you know comes to him uh, from his boss okay and the boss says you know that um, he intended to set up an office in Paris for Mirsot. Now, in ordinary terms, this would be a very attractive uh, proposal yeah? uh, because uh, Paris is, um, you know, was a fashionable place and a good place to be in. And he's working in Algiers, which is, you know, not very, um, uh, you know, significant in that sense. So this proposal would otherwise have been a very exciting proposal. And uh, he says, you know, you're a young man, and I imagine that sort of life life must appeal to you. Um, Mirsot says. Um, uh, yes, but really I didn't mind. He then asked me if I wasn't interested in changing my life. I replied that you could never change your life, that in any case one life was as good as another and that I wasn't at all dissatisfied with mine here. So now you see this is a very significant um, aspect of this whole philosophy. I, I'm sorry there's a, there's a cow that's uh, mooing in the background, but I think she's lost her way so I can't do much about it. Uh, so you see this is a very significant part of the... Uh, philosophy because you know he says I'm not interested really uh, going to Paris uh, he says you know you could never change your life that in any case one life was as good as another and that I wasn't at all dissatisfied with mine here so you see uh, he says I'm not dissatisfied with mine here so he says what difference does it make if I go to Paris or if I stay in Algiers it's just one and the same thing you know it's good to be the same thing there's not going to be any uh, change although uh, you know we often um, presume that life is going to change when we change uh, places you know so um, so this is how it um, comes about okay and he says you know uh, I think I upset my boss okay uh, and then he also says something very significant he says come to think of it I wasn't unhappy you know when I was a student I had plenty of that sort of ambition but when I had to give up my studies I very soon realized that none of it really mattered so you see uh, he talks about how ambition etc was very important at a particular time but after a while when it just goes away it just ceases to be um, significant. Uh, I've also told you, uh, you know, in my earlier lectures about how uh, Albert Camus always thought that he was, uh, you know, a child of the state because, uh, you know, he died, uh, his father, I'm sorry, his father died when he was a very young boy and he had almost grown up on the largest or, you know, on the charity of the state. So here too, uh, you know, Bussold saying that now it doesn't matter to me anymore, you know, ambition, change of places, etc. So this is otherwise, you know, a very unconventional kind of response uh, from anybody else who was being almost given a new assignment. And his boss is so disgusted with his behavior. Uh, now that evening, Marie came and asked me if I wanted to marry her, you know. And look at the response that he gives. He says, I said I didn't mind and we could do if she wanted. Now, we all understand that marriage is, you know, something which is agreed upon by two people. So, she then wanted to know if I loved her. I replied, as I had done once already, that it didn't mean anything and that probably I didn't. Right? So, he says, what does it mean to love or not to love? See, it's a sense of detachment. You know, that absolute detachment. Why? Because there is that lack of a certain kind of a purpose and a meaning in life. Right? So he says, you know, why marry me then, she said. I explained to her that it really didn't matter and that if she wished to, we could get married. Yes, just look at the way he 
could sit on her if you want to. All right, I'll get married. Anywho, she was the one who was asking me and I was simply saying yes. So, Kito, you look at this. He's almost like an agent that is being acted upon. You know, he's like an outsider. Marie wants to marry him. He doesn't want to marry her, but she's sort of, I wouldn't say pestering, but yes, she's insisting. So, you see, if she wants to marry me, I think that would be fine. Right? She then remarked that marriage was a serious matter. And what did he say? I said, no. She didn't say anything for a moment and looked at me in silence, you know. And then she wanted to know, you know, if um, she, you know, he would have accepted the same proposal if it came from another woman with, with whom, you know, he had a similar relationship. And he said, actually. And she then said she wondered if she loved me. And well, I had no idea about that, right? So she finds that he's a very peculiar man. And she said that, you're very peculiar and probably this peculiarity is something that I, you know, would not like after a while. It would disgust me after some time, you know. And uh, then she, you know, she was a very light-hearted and she said, um, she took his arm and announced that she wanted to marry me. And he says, you know, we do so whenever she liked, you know. Then he told her about the boss's proposal and she was very excited about it. And she says, what did you say? And he said, um... I didn't want to go to Paris. Look at the answer that he gives. He says, uh, it's dirty. It's full of pigeons and dark courtyards. The people have all got white skin. Look at the reply that he gave, you know, absolutely in your face, you know, that it's a dark, dingy kind of a place and the people have all got white skin. Remember, he's living in Algiers. He's used to seeing a lot of <coughs> people with black skin. So the kind of response is very, very... Um, strange, you know. So, um, this is, you know, how he responds to questions or suggestions, etc. And Marie is very surprised. Now, when they're walking on the streets to see many beautiful women, and uh, Mersort, you know, comments that, you know, there are very many beautiful women, and Marie said that she'd noticed, and both of them understood actually what, um, you know, he meant. Okay? Now, uh, he had dinner at uh, Celestis, now Marie goes away, and then he has dinner at Celestis. Remember, that's the restaurant of, uh, where he has dinner very often. And he sees a peculiar little woman. You know, she's almost like a robot. Um, she comes in and she reads the menu very, very carefully. She orders and then she writes a bill and then she <coughs> pays the money and she orders the entire course starters and the main course and the dessert all together. And she counts the change and then she gives it back and she gives the, um, you know, tip as well. And uh, Mirsault finds her extremely, extremely robotic, you know. Um, and and she's, she's a very strange uh, kind of a woman who does everything, uh, you know, in a sort of a very detached manner, right? And even though Mirsault himself is very detached, but he finds that that woman is probably even, uh, you know, a thousand steps ahead of her and this woman is significant in the sense that you know we're going to meet her at the trial the second part of the book even she's going to come to see the trial that takes place uh, you know when Mirsort is going to be accused of murder so you see even an insignificant robotic woman who does nothing which seems to be emotional or she doesn't notice anything she's going to be there to judge actually Mirsort when uh, he's you know facing trial right now, uh, he comes back and he, uh, you know, found old Salamano 
and he said that he had gone to the pound but he hadn't found the dog and uh, you know he said that probably he'd be able to find uh, the dog at the police station and uh, you know what uh, nurse sort remarks he said he could always get another dog you know but then there uh, very rightly he pointed out to me that he'd got used to this one now this is another important thing that we'll hear uh, over and over again uh, in this book you know that mother got used to everything i got used to a new life salamanovic used to a new dog and this getting used to is also actually uh, a sort of part of how people are countering the meaninglessness in life you know and uh, and that's what we're all doing at so many points in our life. We're just getting used to certain things, you know. And uh, we don't say that we like it. We don't say that we don't like it. We say that we're just getting used to things, right? So he says, he can't do without the dog because he's got used to it. He didn't say, I love it. He's got used to it and loneliness is probably modern life. And um, so Nia Salt now starts getting, um, you know, sort of chatty with him. He... Um, came and sat on his bed and you know he uh, Salamano came and sat on a chair by the table and then they started uh, you know talking and um, he had mumbling half-finished sentences um, which were running into his yellowing moustache and uh, he was annoyed you know Nersal got annoyed a bit but then uh, he didn't have anything to do and he wasn't sleepy as yet so they started you know talking and he asked him about the dog and like I told you in the, my lecture yesterday he said uh, you know he uh, took the dog uh, when his wife had died he'd married fairly late as a young man he you know wanted to go into the theater he had you know various kind of dreams etc but you know he'd ended up working on the railways and he didn't regret it because now he had a small pension you know? so you see how uh, the dreams of so many people just get uh, you know uh, entangled in a banality a banality is something that's you know very everyday very mundane very uh, common and then you know you have high hopes of becoming a theater artist etc and then you suddenly okay it's a tidy job and i'll get a pinch right so uh, when his wife died uh, you know uh, he became very lonely and he says he hadn't been happy with his wife but on the whole he got quite used to her you know, look at how this comes over and over again this is the counter to the meaninglessness we just get used to things and you are not necessarily happy about it okay so uh, you know he'd asked a friend to get the dog and it was very small he fed it from the bottle but you know since the dog doesn't live as long as a man a very beautiful line they'd ended up growing old together you know so i told you there is a certain kind of irony and humor that albert uh, Camus uses and here they get sort of used to together and they grow old together yeah so um, every night uh, and you know, it was a nice dog it was a good uh, you know a good breed and every night and every morning you know after the dog contracted an illness remember i said he was suffering from mange uh, after he got the skin trouble salamano used to rub it with ointment every day and there's another very beautiful line from this chapter according to him it's real trouble with old age and there is no cure for old age you know so coming down to old age and death in the sense of Salamano, his dog, and Nilsol's mother, etc. So, you know, at this point, um, you know, Salamano is going to go away from um, from uh, Nilsol's place and he thanked him. And he also said, you know, that your mother was very fond of my, uh, of my dog. He referred to her as your poor mother, all right? So you see, <coughs> even Salamano, um, 
you know, sort of understand uh, the kind of predicament, the kind of difficult kind of, uh, you know, situation that probably his mother had. He seemed to assume that I'd been very unhappy ever since mother had died. And I didn't say anything. So he says he's presuming and assuming too many things that actually I'm not absolutely unhappy about. Then very quickly, as if he was embarrassed, he told me that he realized that local people actually thought very badly of him because he sent his mother to an old age home. But he said, I know better. And uh, he said that uh, he knew that, you know, Mirsot loved his mother very much. And uh, Mirsot says, I still don't know why, you know, that people think badly of me for doing that. But that the home uh, seemed the natural thing since I didn't have enough money to have mother look after. And then he also says, uh, she'd run out of things to say to me a long time ago and she'd got bored being alone. Remember, this is what I referred to yesterday as well. Uh, his mother had run out of things to say. Uh, I also referred to the autobiographical element uh, in, in Albert Camus' own life because his mother was um, you know, speech impaired and um, he found that there were a lot of silences that he had with his mother. Uh, then Salamano leaves and uh, he wanted to get some sleep. His life had changed now. And he didn't know what he was going to do. Remember, for eight years, he spent time with a dog and he's got used to it. Uh, there is a sort of an attachment, even an attachment, because we know that they have a very love-hate relationship. Still, he loves the animal. You know, that's how he almost abuses his dog so many times. So I end uh, the chapter by reading um, uh, from the uh, you know ending lines of it. For the first time since I'd known him, and with a rather secretive gesture, he gave me his hand and I felt the scales on his skin. You know, so Salamano almost like um, uh, you know, a dog or like uh, an animal because he had very scaly skin. He smiled slightly and before he went, he said, um, it's a very um, sad you know, line with which the chapter ends, I hope the dogs don't bark tonight. I always think it's mine. So Salamano uh, sort of is very sad now. I mean, it seems to be sad now, you know, that his dog has gone away. And he says, I hope the dogs don't bark tonight because if they do, uh, it reminds, it's going to remind me of uh, my dog uh, who is lost. Okay? So um, with that, we'll be, uh, we have just one chapter left before we finish part one. And um, that it's a significant chapter because, uh, you know, there's something very important that's going to take place there. And of course, um, it's going to lead to um, a sort of a change in direction and also in, in, in the complexion of the manner in which the story is going to be understood and it's going to be written. Uh, so thank you and uh, uh, listen uh, to the podcast very carefully so that you know we can get back with all our um, uh, discussions and our doubts, etc. subsequently. Thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, today I'm going to uh, take you through the last chapter, that's chapter 5. And, um, uh, you know, yesterday I uh, already talked about how uh, the sentence um, in, in Mirso's case has been pronounced. He's going to be decapitated in a public square, um, you know, in front of, uh, you know, the French public. Uh, so, um, in a sense, he's been made out to be uh, a sort of um, uh, villainous character who is um, actually, um, you know, committing a crime which is a crime against society. Um, 
this whole uh, chapter, chapter uh, 4, it brought out a certain uh, kind of um, anxiety in Mayor Salt because he feels that he's being more and more excluded uh, from his own uh, life and the, you know, the scheme of his own life. And um, he has this feeling that uh, you know, his opinion is not important, he's not being counted at all. And uh, when he hears uh, you know, the uh, sentence, he's very, very uh, surprised. So uh, in this last chapter, obviously, we're going to see a culmination of um, everything that has happened in the book. Um, this chapter is um, significant uh, because we're going to see you know, uh, how uh, he embraces, uh, you know, uh, death as the only finality and as the only, uh, you know, true meaning uh, of a meaningless existence, right? Uh, so, you know, we'd be able to see how he understands the truth uh, very unlike other people who don't. And he says that, no, it's okay whether you die today or you die 30 years from now. Death is the most inevitable. And Mirsalt has always refused to do things which everybody else is doing. Remember, he doesn't play the game. He refuses to lie. And um, I also talked about, you know, this reference to the parasite again and again. That, you know, there's another case along with Mirsalt's case, and that's the case of the parasite. That's the murder you know, a son merging his own father. And, uh, you know, symbolically and metaphorically, Mirsalt's case also falls under the same category now because he's actually not being charged so much for murder of the Arab, but it's almost like him being charged for the murder of his mother. So his is almost like a case of matricide, you know, and, you know, throwing his mother into an old age home and not meeting her while she was there and then not crying the funeral and not paying respects at his mother's grave once she was buried. So all this comes to a point where, you know, Mary Salt is almost, you know, symbolically accused of matricide. Uh, in this last chapter, obviously, we're going to see, um, you know, Mary Salt's embracing of death, uh, although right in the beginning he keeps thinking of, you know, the failure of the mechanism, you know, the guillotine should fail, and uh, you know he should be able to be saved, and all these absurd ideas come into his mind, uh, his appeal coming through, and uh, you know after all that he thinks that no, I mean I shouldn't uh, really think of all that because the only inevitable thing in life is actually death, and we see a very strong, a very brave Mayor Salt. Uh, you know by the time I come to the end of the book. Uh, and uh, I mean, I've been doing uh, it for so many years and teaching it for so many years. But every time I come to the end or to chapter five, uh, I, I'm filled with a sense of sorrow. Uh, I feel uh, sad for Mersault, and um, I, I understand what Camus, uh, uh, you know, intended that the readers should uh, perceive Mersault in a certain manner. And uh, when we see him embracing death and Remember in the in chapter four, he also said that you know when I looked around in the court and I I found that you know everybody hated me, and he says I never committed that kind of a crime which actually, uh, you know, should have, uh, you know, sort of spurned people to hate me. But he says yes, everybody hated me, and we do understand from you know whatever we've read about him in part one, 
he was into then who was um, you know an anti-social in that sense he was thoughtful of others he he uh, you know loved salamano he loved marie he was good to celeste he was nice to raymond sentis he was good to emmanuel uh, and uh, he he the only thing that he couldn't do was uh, you know pretend and uh, and he never pretended throughout the entire novel okay uh, we're also going to see uh, you know the role of religion uh, remember we already saw how the magistrate tried to convert him by showing him the crucifix and religion actually you know more than just uh, you know belief in christ uh, religion is also symbolic of something which uh, offers you meaning uh, you know that's essentially what religion tries to do it tries to ground an individual in a certain belief system in uh, in certain uh, in, in you know a certain incarnation or a god and uh, what it tries to do is actually it makes you believe that life has a meaning and what's that meaning it's you know uh, salvation and uh, you know getting onto that path of liberation uh, you know as we would call it attainment of moksha so um, you know even mersault actually rejects a uh, religion he's not rejecting so much just jesus christ or uh, the whole institution of the church he's actually rejecting an attempt at forcing him to find a meaning in life through religion you know so that becomes also very significant and we're going to see that he refuses to meet the chap uh, the chaplain for the third time right so um i begin like i always do uh, by reading um the opening lines of the chapter for the third time i have refused to see the chaplain uh, um the chaplain is the priest i've got nothing to say to him i don't feel like talking and i'll be seeing him soon enough as it is all right so he doesn't want to talk and uh, this entire chapter is one of complete contemplation you know looking inward analyzing the self um, although of course there is also an understanding of the external environment but understanding the self is is very significant here what interests me at the moment is trying to escape from the mechanism trying to find if there's any way out of the inevitable you know and uh, this is actually quite absurd uh, you know trying to find out ways or think about how the mechanism wouldn't work you know the gelatin which is you know the mechanism by which his head is going to be chopped off in a public square uh, i mean how uh, can one think that it doesn't work but probably it's only a man or a woman who has been awarded to capital punishment who probably could think of that we as readers probably would find it very absurd you know because um, uh, you know all these mechanisms are handled and are controlled by the state you know so whether it's the electric chair or the hangman's noose or the or the guillotine i mean you know we always hear of uh, you know 100% success rates i mean we we've, we've never heard of stories in which you know the hangman's noose failed or the electric chair didn't work or or you know the guillotine somehow didn't work but probably a dying man or a dying woman would have these kind of thoughts okay and um when uh, you know mirsol is actually thinking about uh, you know the guillotine being uh, 
you know, snapping or just being unsuccessful. It is an acceptance, actually, of uh, the inevitability of death. And this chapter is actually Mirsol's attempt at embracing a death which other people are not understanding. That's why he says, what difference does it make whether you die today or you die, uh, you know, say, 30 years later. Okay. So, um, from where he was lying, he could only see the sky and nothing else, you know. And what did he do? He spent all day watching the complexion of the sky darken as day returns to night. Okay. And what does he do is he only waits. Yes, remember a very uh, central, pivotal aspect of the, um, you know, philosophy of the absurd is, is waiting. And waiting for what? Waiting for something to happen. And that waiting is generally a very futile kind of a wait. So he says, I don't know how many times I've wondered whether there have ever been instances of condemned prisoners escaping from the implacable machinery, disappearing before the execution, or breaking through the police cordon. Okay? So all kinds of weird thoughts come into his mind of uh, you know, people who are to be executed, who just run out of the police cordon, or they just um, you know, escape from uh, the machinery. He uses the word implacable, uh, you know, which, which actually says that it, 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 you know, it just can't be escaped. But he's just imagining all thi those things, you know. And see, there's a very uh, a funny thing that he says also. He said, I'd reproach myself. He said, I scolded myself every time because I never paid enough attention to stories of ex executions, you know. And he says, you should always take an interest in these things. So that's a very funny and a very ironical statement that you should read more about executions, you know, as though you're supposed to read about you know stories of you know morality and self-improvement so you must read about executions because you could be executed one day yes a very typical mere thought very um, you know funny and in the face that he can be even when he's about to be executioned he's thinking about uh, you know scolding himself for not having paid much attention to stories of executions yeah so um, he says maybe there must have been special books which i didn't read and you know, then I could have uh, paid much more attention to how to escape from the guillotine, all right? Um, then, uh, you know, he keeps thinking of all these things, and uh, uh, he says, you know, the paper, um, then he talks about, you know, reports about uh, uh, what was being reported in the papers. He says the papers often talked about a debt being owed to society. According to them, it had to be paid. But that hardly appeals to the imagination. Yes, he says, what kind of a debt am I supposed to pay back to society? Yes, uh, what have I done that I have to sort of repay it? All right. And uh, he says that the most vital thing was that there should be chance of escaping, of breaking out, you know, and of making a you know a mad kind of a rush where uh, I would be able to be uh, you know I would be able to escape. Uh, naturally, he says that hope was of being shot down at a street corner in full flight and by a bullet from nowhere. Right? So he says that even if I thought of escaping, I'd be shot obviously by the police. Right? Then um, he says, you know, but when I really thought about it, there was nothing to permit me such a luxury. Everything was set against it, and I was caught in the mechanism again. So here, you know, uh, we see how he's being trapped. You know, if he thinks or he imagines that he's running out on the streets and running away from the police, he's shot. And 
if he's not shot successfully, then I have to come back again to the mechanism. Right? So he sort of comes back to this whole idea that he has to, uh, you know, be uh, decapitated, right? And uh, then he, um, you know, uh, keeps uh, thinking about this whole um, idea about, uh, you know, how the uh, mechanism, you know, might just fail or something, right? And uh, he also said, you know, and yet I had to admit that from the very second it was taken, its consequences became just as certain, just as serious as the fact that I was lying there flat against the wall, right? So whenever he, uh, you know, thought of the absolute certainty of the mechanism working, he became more and more certain, you know, and more and more serious that, uh, you know, there was just no escape and uh, death was the only inevitable thing for him. Um, so he says at times uh, like this, uh, you know, he remembered um, a story uh, that his mother used to tell him about his father. And uh, as I told you that there are, you know, some autobiographical elements in this. Uh, Mirsholt's uh, you know, father died when he was a very little child. He had no memories, in fact, of his father. And uh, his uh, he only used to remember the story that his mother told him. That, you know, once his father had gone out uh, to the street to see a public execution. And when he came back, he was very sick. He vomited and he found the whole execution very disgusting. So uh, probably, um, you know, that story that he heard, uh, you know, played on his mind. And he says, you know, I recall a story that my mother told me. So this is exactly uh, what had happened uh, to him when he when he was um, when he was a child uh, himself. Right. So he says, um, you know, perhaps the only thing that I knew about the man was the story the mother used to tell me. Uh, who was his father? Okay, see, he's, you refers to him as a man, as a man, because he never really knew him. Okay, uh, his father had gone to watch a murderer being executed. He felt ill at the thought of going, but he still went. And he says, you know, my father disgusted me a bit at that time. You know, why did he have to go for a public execution? But he says, you know, now I understand it was completely natural, and I don't know how I hadn't realized that nothing was more important than executions, you know. And in fact, that was the only thing which could be actually, um, you know, really interesting, okay. So he said that if I ever got out of prison, look at, the, look at the sentence here. He says, if I ever got out of prison, I'd go and watch all the executions there were. But he think, said, but I think I was wrong even to consider the possibility. Yeah? So he says, uh, Otherwise, you know, for his knowledge, etc., he should go and watch all the executions. Okay. Now, uh, once you know, when his father returned, uh, his father had really become uh, very sick. You know, he had vomited all day and he was very ill all the time. Okay, and uh, he says that you know, I think uh, it's terrible, you know, to actually watch a public execution. And the fact is that you know. There are so many people who really used to go and watch watch it. You know, that itself speaks of a certain kind of, a, uh, you know, psychology of a people who took such kind of, a, uh, you know, pleasure in going and watching uh, these public executions. So he says he remembered that the only thing that, you know, was, uh, um, uh, you, know, you know, in his memory about his father was the fact that he had gone to see an execution. Okay. Uh, then he says, you know, it was... Um, 
he kept thinking about uh, the fact that you know he would be able to escape you know or you know running out of the cordon and then uh, you know but then he says you know naturally you can't always be rational you know and uh, he realized that the essential thing was to give the condemned man a chance you know and he keeps saying that no the condemned man w- must be given a chance um and uh, this is also uh, sort of um, autobiographical in a sense that you know um albert camus fought for uh, the uh, abolition of uh, capital punishment and of course um, he uh, didn't s- didn't live to see the abolition but uh, you know by the time he he died there were many uh, countries uh, in and around europe who had uh, which had uh, you know abolished capital punishment okay then uh, he also s- in, you know imagined you know that they could find some chemical you know compound for the patient to take he says you know i referred to the uh, prisoner as a patient okay which would kill him 9 times out of 10 he would then know that this you know that that was the condition okay because when i uh, really thought about it and considered things calmly i could see that what was wrong with the guillotine was that you had no chance at all absolutely none so he says you know the guillotine had you know 100% chances of uh, success whereas if it was a chemical uh, you know given or something it could be 9 out of 10 you could escape you know if it was being shot uh, you could run away from the police cordon but he says the guillotine has uh, you know 100% success okay so he's thinking of all these uh, strange things and um, you know he says that it's very sad that the condemned man has to hope that the you know the machine would fail or something he says otherwise you just have uh, no hope at all okay then uh, you know he keeps thinking of this and then he says you know the he he had um, seen pictures of the guillotine and uh, he never imagined that you know that the guillotine that he was going to be on was different from what he'd imagined he says that the machine in the picture had struck me because it looked so immaculate and gleaming like a precision instrument so he's seen pictures of it uh, <coughs> although you know um, there is a step that you have to climb he imagines all kinds of things about it and he tries to you know sort of join his imagination and reality okay uh, he says you always get exaggerated ideas of things you know nothing about okay so he says he got all strange ideas about uh, you know the guillotine he said i was un uh, he says i was made to realize that on the contrary everything was quite simple you know and uh, the machine you know uh, everything was quite simple because he says the machine was actually on the same level as the man and he said i always imagined i always thought that you know what you had to climb one step or two to be able to get up to that machine okay so um, then you know he ends this uh, this paragraph by saying whereas once again the mechanism demolished everything they killed you discreetly and rather shamefacedly but extremely accurately so he says you know uh, these machines are almost like precision machines they kill you uh, you know Uh, discreetly and shamefacedly but they kill you very accurately so he says no i there's no hope for me uh, to be able to escape from the guillotine right then uh he was always thinking about you know the dawn uh, you know which is the day that he's going to be executed and it appeared right so he kept thinking that you know whenever there was any sound of any step he thought it was you know somebody coming to tell him that your you know you know your appeal uh, has come through etc and he says you know the beating of his heart 
you know, became so uh, pronounced that he could feel it in his head, right? And uh, either the dawn or my appeal would still be there. And I, I, you know, end up telling myself that the most rational thing was not to hold myself back. So he says, they're going to do two things. And slowly we're seeing, uh, you know, what is Mesol doing? He is, uh, you know, sort of uh, accepting the, you know, the inevitability of death. Okay. Uh, so they came at dawn. He says, I knew that. In fact, I spent every night just waiting for the dawn to come. I never liked being surprised. It's so typical, Mere thought. Yeah. Um, he says, when something's happen happening to me, I'd rather be around. Yes. So much like the outsider, uh, and like the naive hero. He says, when something's happening to me, I really want to be involved. You know, that you know. <coughs> excuse me. When I'm executed, I want to know about it. Okay. So um, that's when he ended up sleeping only for a bit during the day. He kept waiting. Either it's going to be the appeal, or it's going to be the you know, <coughs> the men uh, coming to take him uh, for his ex execution, okay? And he says, once it was past midnight, I would be waiting, listening. Never before had my ears picked up so many noises or detected such tiny sounds. I must say, um, you know, I must say though, that in a way I was lucky throughout that period in that I never once heard footsteps, you know? So he becomes very, very sharply perceptive to any kind of sound anything and uh, you know he he is happy that he didn't hear anybody coming and he uh, you know thinks off and on of his mother mother often used to say that you never altogether unhappy you know a very significant thing because he always keeps saying you know i was never unhappy in my life yes i might have had a certain kind of a boredom a certain kind of a mechanical existence but that doesn't mean i was unhappy and she used to say that you're never altogether unhappy. And lying there in my prison, when the sky turned red and a new day slid into my cell, I'd agree with her. Because I could just as easily have heard footsteps and my heart would have burst. So, you know, he wants to just live one more day at a time. For even though the faintest rustle would send me flying to the door, and even though with my ear pressed to the world, I'll wait there frantically until I could hear my own breathing and be terrified to find it so hoarse like a dog's death rattle. My heart wouldn't burst after all and I'd have gained another 24 hours. So he's counting the one day at a time and uh, he just doesn't want to hear those footsteps. He still wants to give him some chance to live. No? So he says all through the day there was my appeal I think I made the most of the idea, you know, and um, so he 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 obviously understands that uh, he would be able to, you know, not escape at all. He says, "Well then, I'll die sooner than other people, obviously." But everybody knows that life isn't worth living, you know. So you know, this for the first time we hear or we see Mesod saying it in such, you know point blank words. He says life isn't worth living, everybody knows. There's no meaning and everybody has to die one day. And so he says, you know, uh, and when it came down to that, he says, you know, what does it matter very much whether you die at 30 or at 70? Since, in either case, other men and women will naturally go on living for thousands of years. Even, you know? So he says, you know, it's, it's, it's inevitable. Yes, nobody's going to live forever. So uh, you know, it doesn't make any difference at all. 
nothing was plainer in fact it was still only me who was dying yes although he says that everybody is alive while i'm dying but yes the inevitability of the fact is that everybody is going to die whether it's now uh, it was uh, sorry it was still only me who was dying whether it was now or in 20 years time right so he now starts pondering on the inevitability of death right so he says i'd have to face the same situation anyway if i don't die today i'll die tomorrow uh, given that you've got to die it obviously doesn't matter exactly how or when so he says you know what difference does it make and he uh, you know very calmly accepts the fact that he is you know going to die no uh, then at that point and only at that point i'd as it were have the right uh, i'd so to speak give myself permission to consider the alternative hypothesis i have was pardon so he says okay there are only two things remember he thinks about one is the dawn and the second is the appeal so he says now okay what happens if i'm pardoned you know uh the annoying thing was that somehow i'd have to control that rush of blood you know which would be make which would make me delirious with joy so i wouldn't be able to control that and that would be very annoying so you see how mersol uh, thinks of something which would be very very uh, you know important in his life and he says no i i don't think i'd be able to take the happiness uh, you know of that kind of news right so uh, now another uh, you know incident which takes place is when he refused to see the chaplain yet again remember he refused the chaplain three times now he's refusing him for the last time and why is the chaplain being sent to him you know so that he could be redeemed you know because um, he's about to die yes remember even the magistrate had shown him the crucifix and said that you know if you've committed a sin you must go back to the arms of jesus okay uh he you know did not want to see him he says for the first time in ages uh you know i thought of marie and that's why he didn't want to see the chaplain his mind was full of all kinds of thoughts and he said you know marie hadn't written me uh, written to me for days on end and uh, that evening i thought it over and i told myself you know she'd probably got tired of being a condemned man's mistress you know uh, very significant about how the world wants you to play the game and maybe marie wanted to be uh, you know the girlfriend of mirso but everybody must have told her that you know you're a condemned man's mistress it also crossed his mind that she might have been ill or she might have died you know it was in the natural order of things and how would i have known when now that we were physically separated there was nothing left to keep us together or to remind us of each other you know so he remember we always talked about him you know understanding marie through her body so he says you know her body is not there physically she's not there how do i know whether she's ill or whether she's dead and you know actually that's a very natural way to be able to understand yes uh, we often get into uh, you know the philosophical aspect of you know the heart grows fonder when you're away from somebody etc but mirsol doesn't believe in all that yes so he says uh, so you know anyway from that point marie's memory would have meant nothing to me you know he says i wasn't interested in her anymore you know as if you know it was almost like she was dead and he says i found it quite natural i found it quite normal as i could quite understand that people would forget about me once i was dead so he says what's the big deal i would be dead and people would forget about me they had nothing more to do with me i couldn't even say that this was hard to accept so he says i think i've been able to accept it and accept the fact that you know uh, i'll be just a statistic tomorrow and if marie is dead 
and you know in fact he even thinks that probably Marie is married to somebody else and maybe uh, you know she's uh, Raymond Sinti is giving her kisses instead of uh, in, in, instead of Mersault you know so it's at this point that the chaplain walked in he was very irritated he did not want to meet him and he was still he sat down and he invited me to sit next to him I refused all the same I found him quite pleasant so maybe he was feeling lonely but um, you know he sat there for a moment and then uh, you know he started talking to him you know and uh, he asked him you know why did you refuse to see me he said and he sa uh, you know Marisol says I don't believe in God he wanted to know whether I was quite sure and whether I had no reason for asking myself this question it didn't seem to matter then almost as if he were talking to himself he remarked that sometimes you think you're sure when you're really not. Mirsol didn't say anything, you know. And uh, he kept asking him, what do you think? Um, he says, yeah, maybe it's possible. But in any case, I may not have been sure what really interested me, he says, you know. Uh, but he says, I do know what doesn't interest me and God doesn't interest me at all. Okay. Um, and then, you know, what he was talking about was uh, one of the things that interest him, that's God, okay. So he looked away, but then you know he kept, uh, you know, trying to talk to him, etc. And uh, you know he says God would help you. Uh, you know every man that I've known in your position has turned towards him, and uh, you know he addressed him as his friend. And uh, he says we are all condemned, uh, you know, to die. And he says, uh, you know, but if you don't die now, you die later, and the same problem arises. So how are you going to face up that ordeal? So he says, it doesn't matter. Yes, I'm I'm ready to die, and I I don't really, uh, you know, I don't re really care. And you know, he he's very very angry with him, and the chaplain says he pities him, etc. Okay, then uh, you know he says that uh, he was quite certain that his appeal would be allowed, but he was you know that Mersault was burdened with sin, uh, from which he had to free himself, you know, and uh, he. You know, he says, I, I'm, I'm simply being told that I was guilty. I was guilty and I was praying, you know, for it. And there was nothing more that could be asked for. So there's guilt, there's God, there's forgiveness. And, uh, you know, he, he's very irritated with him. In fact, he gets so angry with him. He says, you know, you're mistaken. There's more that could be asked of you. And, uh, you know, he talks about all these philosophical, religious, spiritual things. And he is now uh, reaching the point of real anger the priest looked all around him and reply, uh, replied in a voice which was suddenly sounded very tired you know weary right and then he says uh, uh, you know you should actually look around and probably you will see the face of jesus so he says no i i can't see anybody's face here it doesn't I, you know it, it, it can't be you know visible to me yes and he says that probably if he could see anything in the prison it would be the you know face of Marie and the face of Marie was actually the face of desire right then uh, he kept talking about uh, kept talking to him of religion kept insisting on all these things okay and then he shouted at him okay uh, you know have you imagined any other life and Mirsort shouts at him he says one which would remind me of this life and in the same breath I told him that I had enough he started talking to me about God again but I went up to him and made one last attempt okay and he says you know I'm your father and it irritated him he says I'm you know you're not my father then he kept calling him his son 
and then he says i'm not i don't call me such things you know and he started mersold and starts shouting at the top of his voice we see mersold getting angry for the first time he shakes him you know uh, he grabs him by his collar of his cassock the cassock is the gown which uh, you know the dress which a priest wears and he was frightened to death you know and uh, you know he started shouting people came and you know they separated both of them and he was like so very angry and you know before that now you know there there's a very um, significant passage here. uh he you know mersold this is what he thinks about uh, the chaplain he says uh, you know the chaplain couldn't even be sure he was alive because he was living like a dead man i might seem to be empty handed but i was quite sure of myself sure of everything surer than he was sure of my life and sure of my death that was coming to me so he says i'm really pretty sure about everything yes that was all i had but at least it was a truth which i had told of just as it had ho- uh, sorry it's a truth which i had hold of just as it had hold of me i'd been right i was still right i was always right i lived a certain way and i could just as well have lived in a different way i'd done this and i hadn't done that i hadn't done one thing whereas i'd done another so what it was as if i'd been waiting all along for this very moment and for the early dawn when i'd be justified nothing nothing mattered and i knew very well why he too knew why from the depths of my future throughout the whole of this absurd life i'd been leading i felt a vague breath drifting towards me across all the years that were still to come and on its way this breath had evened out everything that was then being proposed to me in the equally unreal years i was living through what did other people's deaths or a mother's love matter to me what did this god or the lives people chose or the destinies they selected matter to me when one and the same destiny was to select me and thousands of millions of other privileged people who like me call themselves my brothers didn't he understand so a very philosophical passage and for the first time the use of the word absurd life is brought into focus so he says this world is absurd but i've always lived with certainty certain in what i did certain in what i uh, know certain in what i uh, understood and he says you know the chapter is just living like a dead man so he says this is an inevitability everybody's going to face it everybody's privileged everybody's the same because uh, they were only privileged people uh, today they're privileged but tomorrow they would be condemned to death okay so he says what did it matter if he was accused of murder and then executed for not crying that mother screamed yes so very significant this you know the closing of the chapter very significant all the philosophical truths sort of coming together and uh, you know uh, making a sort of strong statement about the inevitability of death and how mersold is the only man who is strong to be able to accept what his uh, life is giving him which is actually death okay so he says you know salamanu's dog would was worth just as much as his wife you know so what is the difference there the little automatic woman was just as guilty as the parisian woman before had married or as marie who had wanted to marry me what did it matter that raymond was just as much my mate as celesty who was worth more than him what did it matter that marie now had a new mersold to kiss didn't he understand that he was condemned and that from the depths of my future 
I was choking with all this shouting. You know, this is what he was saying, thinking, and he was shaking the chaplain. People had to come and separate them, and you know, he he was surprised that he behaved in such a manner. You know, and then uh, now uh, coming to the last paragraph, uh, once he was gone, I felt calm again. I was exhausted, and I threw myself onto my bunk. I think I must have fallen asleep because I woke up with stars shining on my face. Sounds of the countryside were wafting in. Yes, remember, Mersault, uh, very closely connected to nature, very closely connected to, uh, you know, tiny sounds and sights which you can see, which you can understand. Uh, you know, the night air was cooling my temples, temples by his forehead, with the smell of earth and salt. The wondrous peace of the sleeping summer flooded into me. Now he becomes very calm and he accepts um, the inevitability of his death. At that point, on the verge of daybreak, there was a scream of sirens. Yes, so this quiet is broken by the sound of sirens. They were announcing a departure to a world towards which I would now be forever indifferent. Yes, a beautiful, one of the most beautiful lines of the novel. He says, you know, they're announcing a certain kind of departure to a world of which I would be indifferent. For the first time in a very long time, I thought of mother. I felt that I understood why at the end of her life she'd taken a fiancé and why she'd pretended to start again. Yes, pretended. All a part of the absurdity and the meaninglessness of life. There at the home where lights faded away, there too the evenings were a kind of melancholy truce. Yes, a truce is you know, when uh, warring parties stop fighting and they make a peace, you know. So he says she was also looking for a kind of a sad melancholy, a sad kind of a peace. So close to death, mother must have felt liberated and ready to live her life again. So, you know, see, he is also experiencing the same thing, that he's so close to his execution and he wants to live again. He wants to think of all those memories of his life. And yet... Yeah, the deep understanding that death is something that's inevitable. No one, no one at all had any right to cry over her. And I too felt ready to live my life again. And as if this great outburst of anger had purged all my ills, killed all my hopes, I looked up at the mass of signs and stars on the night sky. And I laid myself open for the first time to the benign indifference of the world. He looks at the sky and the stars seem to be looking down at him and he sort of surrenders to the benign indifference. Yes, look at the two words, benign indifference, you know, otherwise benign here is kind and indifference is obviously the world being, you know, not concerned, etc. And he says, I left myself as though openly surrendered to the benign indifference of the world and he says, you know, just like nobody had a right to cry over my mother's funeral because she had lived again, she had uh, tried to make a certain kind of peace. He says, even I've made that kind of peace and uh, nobody should, uh, you, know, uh, you know, be regretful about my death. Okay? And finding it so much like myself, in fact, so fraternal. You know, fraternal is when you talk about something which <coughs> has a certain kind of a brotherhood together. He says, I realize that I'd been happy and that I was still happy. Yes? So, you know, Mir Salt um, admitting that he was 
happy and he was still happy even at this point and see the last lines of the novel very um, significant and a very strong um, a very brief kind of an acceptance of his death uh, in a public square watched by the French people and you know his head in that guillotine and he says for the final consummation and for me to feel less lonely my last wish was that there should be a crowd of spectators at my execution and that they should greet me with cries of hatred no? so there's pathos there's an irony uh, and there is also a strong kind of acceptance that you know he says yes let everybody come and cry out uh, you know uh, you know shouts of hatred because uh, he understands that uh, you know everybody uh, who's going to come to that uh, execution is is essentially you know so so irrational they don't understand really what's happening and what Michaud's done that he says that let everybody come it doesn't matter I've accepted my uh, uh, I, I've accepted in complete uh, you know in uncertain terms my death and that's how it's going to be okay? so uh, uh, you know uh, you know this is the end of the novel and uh, a very significant end and I, I think as readers uh, we almost sort of, uh, uh, I mean, tend to, you know, fall in love with the character of Mesot. Some of us would fall in love. Some of us would say that, you know, he's an out-and-out reject, uh, a person who doesn't deserve any sympathy because uh, he, he was so hard-hearted, you know, he was so unkind. But yet we understand that Mesot is probably the only one who understands everything. He doesn't play the game and um, this is how he, you know, behaves. Now, um, since uh, we've, uh, we're through with the novel, uh, and I'd, I, you know, uh, already given you the questions um, for discussions, etc., um, I've already, uh, you know, given you, um, uh, you know, material on, uh, you know, the philosophy of the third and how, uh, you know, he behaves in that way, and uh, you know, along the entire uh, explanations of all the chapters, I've focused my attention on, uh, you know, all the apparent and the symbolic ideas that are in this novel so uh, I'd end with the afterword which um, you know Albert Camus uh, talks about you know how his character was perceived because you know obvi you know obviously uh, he, he was quite a blasphemous character in that way but he says let, let me give you a little justification I'd already referred to the afterword but I just w just want to read it through uh, so that you understand what uh, Camus really uh, and how really Camus wanted his character to be. A long time ago, I summed up the outsider in a sentence which I realize is extremely paradoxical. In our society, any man who doesn't cry at his mother's funeral is liable to be condemned to death. I simply meant that the hero of the book is condemned because he doesn't play the game. In the sense he is an outsider, to the society in which he lives, wandering on the fringe, on the outskirts of life, solitary and sensual. And for that reason, some readers have been tempted to regard him as a reject. But to get a more accurate picture of his character, or rather one which conforms more closely to his author's intentions, you must ask yourself in what way Mirsol doesn't play the game. The answer is simple, he refuses to lie. Lying is not only saying what isn't true, it is also in fact especially saying more than is true 
and in the case of the human heart saying more than one feels so he says you know um, essentially lying is just not saying uh, you know what isn't true it's saying something beyond what you feel and he says that itself is is really uh, some kind of a very uh, you know tragic kind of a mistake he says we all do it every day to make life simpler but contrary to appearances mirsol doesn't want to make life simpler he says what he is he refuses to hide his feelings and society immediately feels threatened so whenever mirsol you know tells the truth and truth is always blatant society immediately feels threatened for example he has asked to say that he regrets this crime in time honored fashion he replies that he feels more annoyance about it than true regret and it is this nuance that condemns him you know so he cannot do what everybody is doing he he will not say anything to save himself and that's when the world feels threatened so for me mere salt is not a reject but a poor and naked man in love with a sun which leaves no shadows yes a very a beautiful line he's in love with the sun that has no shadows yes and that's why we say that you know mirsolt is a man who cannot read between the lines he can just see what's um or he can just state what he thinks what he feels without beating around the bush and you know and when we beat around the bush we are essentially lying uh he says you know far from lacking all sensibility he's driven by a tenacious and therefore profound passion the passion for an absolute and for truth so he says there is a strong kind of you know passion that he has and what's that passion the passion is for truth this truth is as yet a negative one a truth born of living and feeling but without which no triumph over the self or over the world will ever be possible so albert camus ultimately saying that yes truth is what you know Uh, symbolizes or represents mirsold and truth is actually what uh, the whole world requires so what wouldn't, wouldn't be far wrong in seeing the outsider as the story of a man who without any heroic pretensions yes remember in my first lecture i referred to him also as an anti-hero see he doesn't have any heroic pretensions he doesn't pretend to be like a hero agrees to die for the truth i also once said and again paradoxically that i tried to make my character represent the only christ that we deserve so um it was of course very blasphemous because comparing mirsold with christ was um, like comparing chalk and cheese and he says you know uh, one has to understand the spirit in which i said that so he says um you know it will be understood after uh, these explanations that i said it without any intention of blasphemy but simply with the somewhat ironic affection that an artist has a right to feel towards the characters he has created so he says if i said that he was a christ that you deserve it was because he died for the truth and like jesus is believed to have died for the truth died for the sins of his people so also mirsol dies because he tells the truth he refuses to say that he you know regrets his crime or that you know he uh, you know didn't kill the arab or you know he refuses to tell all those kind of stories that his lawyer teaches him to so he says my you know character if i said that he was the only christ allow me some kind of leverage to actually be able to uh, 
I have uh, you know the right to love my character uh, because um, I think I deserve you know every bit of that love and affection uh, to show towards my character uh, so my students I hope you um, you know listen to all the previous podcasts and you listen to this and then uh, uh, you know uh, we'll be able to have uh, discussions together and I hope you've enjoyed the this, this novel because it's um, unusual it's um, layered it, it, it's got a lot of uh, you know things to explain and understand and more importantly probably you have to absorb uh, this novel you know you have to uh, sort of uh, mm, understand it uh, from Mirsol's perspective and also from uh, various perspectives of your own and when you go into it deeply probably you'll really be able to understand that th there are so many things which are meaningless there are so many things which are absolutely purposeless there are so many things which are so absurd but we have to go through uh, that entire uh, sort of uh, uh, you know routine and that procedure because uh, you know it makes life simple so I mean I hope you enjoyed this and understood every facet and uh, I'm sure if you uh, listen to the podcast very carefully, uh, you'll be able to be really, uh, you know, well prepared to be able to tackle any kind of question uh, and uh, understand, uh, you know, all the nuances, all the little, uh, you know, uh, very small uh, but very, very significant turns, you know, in the novel. You know? uh, I think that's what... Um, I mean, I would really like uh, you to be able to take out from these podcasts. So, um, all the best to you and thank you.